Welcome, you are listening to the Overseas Life Redesign Podcast, where you'll hear fun, relaxed, and inspirational interviews with people who are really living the dream. I'm Dawn Fleming, an attorney turned alchemist, and your host for the show, coming to you from the tropical island paradise of Isla Mujeres, Mexico. Listen to conversations with courageous souls who've stepped out of their comfort zone and designed a new way of life. They'll share their experiences, wisdom, and offer practical steps you can take to redesign your life overseas. Listen, and you'll believe if you can dream it, you can achieve it. Today, I am with David Chislett, and I am so excited to have a conversation with him. Um, He's a published author, poet, musician, and artist, and an entrepreneur for over 25 years. And he says the link uh, that joins everything together is creativity. And so I am thrilled to have you with me today, David. Thank you so much for taking time. Hey, Dawn. Yeah, it's good to be here. (laughs) So I am dying to ask you uh, a a lead-off question that I get asked all of the time. Uh And I'm just, uh, out of my own curiosity, wonder how you answer it. And that Uh is, where are you from? Yeah, I, 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 that's never an easy question for me to answer. I was, I was born in Portsmouth in the south of England. My entire family emigrated on a boat to South Africa in 1974 when I was like three and a half. Uh, and that's where I grew up in South Africa. Um, but from the age of 24 onwards, I was in and out of South Africa uh, between Johannesburg and London and Cape Town and London and, and, and what have you. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure where I'm from. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I uh, always say. I say it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> maybe that'll help you going forward when you get out. Of yeah. and they kind of go, oh, wow. And I, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I, I'm, I'm now a Dutch citizen and I've lived here for eight years. So increasingly that's becoming my answer. And, unless, of course, it's Dutch people asking because then they look sure. at me weird because my Dutch isn't perfect. <laughs> Well, great. Um, so, wow, a boat from England to South Africa, like, that's a yeah. long, I'm a sailor, that's a long journey. You probably don't have much recollection of that. You're very small, but. No, I mean, it's very hard to tell whether what I think I remember is what I was told or based on photographs, or what have you. But yeah, it's like a two or three week trip, if I recall correctly, from 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 the stories. It's quite an epic thing. And it was a big business back then. The Union Castle Liners, there were a whole bunch of them. We were on the Windsor Castle. And, you know, it's, it's like a cruise ship, but, but less, you know, somewhat less glam, I guess. <laughs> right. And so we do, were your uh, folks moving because of work or what, what prompted that? No, um, my folks were moving because England in the 70s was a hellhole. Um, and, <laughs> okay. you know, there was very nearly economic collapse and there were power shortages and strikes. And I mean, you know, people tend to complain and moan about Thatcher. But the reason why she got in was because the country was going to hell in a handbasket gotcha. um, for, for lots of different reasons. Um, so... I'm the youngest of five kids. You know, we were a family of seven. Um, so my parents took the decision to go somewhere where um, they thought we'd have a better chance of having a life. Great. Well, that's and that that's kind of what this show is all about. And and what I help people do is is you know if it's not working for you, we're we're not trees. We need not glow grow where we're planted, right? So yeah. if you can move to have a better life, like why not? 
Did they yeah. know anyone? Did they ha- they know people there? Did they have a community? Yes. My mother was actually born in Zimbabwe, which was then Rhodesia, and had done her high school years in South Africa. Um, so w- when my parents were trying to decide between New Zealand, Canada, Australia, and South Africa, they decided to go for the one place where one of them at least kind of knew the lie of the land. Smart. Very smart. Well, except for the fact that you're heading into South Africa uh, you know, renowned apartheid state heading towards the state of emergency, um, you know, (laughs) possibly not the most long-term ethical choice, but, uh, you know, their decision was very much fueled by the short-term benefit to their family, you know? Sure. And and how did, uh, I mean, you didn't really have a frame of reference from where you were, but you did spend time growing up there in South Africa and then returned to England. Yeah. What what was, tell me a little bit about what what growing up in South Africa was like. Well, growing up as a white English speaking South African, you're kind of like a minority within a minority, or or we certainly were um, back then. So it was kind of weird. I mean, the Afrikaans speaking kids hated us. Uh, because of the Anglo-Boer War, they they basically still blamed the British for, well, you know, the British invented concentration camps and all sorts of lovely stuff during the Anglo-Boer War. So um, the Afrikaner despised us, um, and most English speakers were not politically active. So we were kind of like these weird passive passengers in, in the sort of caboose of the uh, apartheid gravy train. Um, it was, you know... To my embarrassment, I always have to admit that I didn't really kind of figure out what I was living in or under until I, you know, went to university when I was nearly 20. It was mm. um, it was weird. You know, we were totally cut off from the world. Um, if you were into music that was, you know, not 100% mainstream on the radio, you, you had to have friends who had parents who were traveling internationally for business. You could smuggle in records in their luggage. Uh, and that kind of stuff. There was just no access to any kind of um, current global culture yeah, or anything like that. Right? We didn't have the internet for you to. <laughs> yeah. So you know, of course, that it was just you literally had to find a way to get physical stuff in, and and it was so. You know, we grew up within a bubble within a bubble, and it took me quite a long time to realize how much of a bubble I'd grown up in. Yeah. And I don't think that's that unusual. I mean, as a kid, like you don't have any other frame of reference. I mean, you don't know whether your circumstance, even, you know, poor abused children, like they think that's normal. Right. I mean, they just don't know anything different. So it's not that um, unusual to to hear that. Um, So tell me about uh, going to university in England then what what that uh, was like. Well, no, I, I, I went to university in South Africa. Oh, you did? Um, but, oh, excuse me. Okay. But what, what kind of popped the bubble was that this was now post the unbanning of apartheid um, and, you know, just before the first democratic elections. And so I was suddenly, for the first time in my entire life, in a social situation with Black people of my own age. Okay. Never, ever had that before. And it was like, oh, wow, look at that. You guys are just like me. Who would have thunk? You know, it's, again, you know, it almost makes it sound like I'm some kind of racist, but it was just... It, it was just such a novel experience. I had no basis on which to have any opinion about anything. And it was like, wow, look at, okay, wow. And so on, you know. Well, um, when And when you're in a, a culture like that, that's homogenous. I mean, I, you know, I say the same thing. We didn't, I grew up in Minnesota. When I was growing up, there weren't any, we had two black people out of 600 in our class. 
One was a homecoming king king and quarterback of the high school football team until I, I, so I totally get what you're saying. Like if you don't, you're not exposed to that. When you come across that, you do think it's weird. You're like, yeah. oh, what a novel concept. Like, isn't it, aren't they just people like, yeah. like, and it can be later in life when, when you kind of realize that. I finished my undergrad degree and decided to embark on a postgrad degree. Got about halfway through that. Just having spent six months in, in, in postgrad, getting a little bit of a more of a look inside academic life. I was just like, mm, no. <laughs> and what were you studying? No, no, no. Literature. Oh, okay. English Fantastic. literature. And it was just so ivory tower. So like, wah, wah, wah. I was just like, I'm a writer. I'm a creator. This is just theoretical waffle. And it's just, just a bunch of old men locked up in their buildings who don't do anything. I just hated it. <laughs> So halfway through the year, I deregistered, uh, sold my beat-up fourth-hand Ford uh, and my guitars and stuffed everything into a backup pack and took off for London to go and discover my roots. Okay. And um, did you find them? No. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd grown up in South Africa basically being told to go home, you don't belong here, and not really ever feeling like I did belong because, well, you know, a myriad of reasons. And then getting to the UK and suddenly going, oh, my God, I'm so South African. I, I'm definitely not a Brit. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Kind yeah, of a man without a country. fit in either. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then did you stay in uh, England for very long? Mm, about two years. Um, then went back to South Africa, stayed there another three years, went back to London for another year, back to South Africa for about seven years, back to London for another year, back for 10 and that's when I left, you know, and I've now ended up in the Netherlands. I've now been out of South Africa for coming up for nine years. Did it occur to you to go anywhere else or those were just kind of the, the two places you? Well, I've ended up in the Netherlands completely by accident. That was never really part of the plan. Um, I think, And I want to hear about that too, but I'm just curious if there was <laughs> yeah. ever uh, a thought. Look, I was never planning on immigrating as such. You know, I was always just kind of exploring. So, you know, when I lived in London, I didn't do any of the normal kind of like two-year traveler backpacker stuff. I, I worked in the post-production facility at a TV production house, worked three and a half to four days a week and spent every cent that I earned on concert tickets and beer. Uh, Good investment. <laughs> <laughs> kind of catching up on all the stuff that I hadn't been able to expose myself to as a, you know, as a teenager. Well, and there travel. was some very good music back then, right? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, you know, so I got to see like all the old punk bands who had reformed and were basically a bit old and craggy now. And but it right. was fun. It was a good laugh. So that's that, those were my my first London years were very wild and adventurous, and, and it wasn't really about making a life or settling down. It was just about I don't know catching up or something. Interesting. So I'm dying to know how you got to the Netherlands. Well, coming up for nine years ago, I wrapped up a number of business projects and things I was doing in South Africa. And I was like, okay, got some money in the bank, no particular project running right now. So I can either sink all of this money into the next project and sort of go through the cycle of investing, slowly running out of money, new projects, slowly gaining traction, you know, that, that whole curve. Or I can take a break. And it had been 10 years. I'd done 
an incredible number of things in those 10 years. I was exhausted and actually not burnt out exactly, but I was I was done, I was toast. I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to go. Um, and I, again, I, I sold everything I owned and I took off with 17 kilos on my back as a, well, like a 42-year-old man. Uh, and I went and worked in a pub in the middle of nowhere in just outside Buckingham in central England, uh, living in the roof, pulling pints um, for a few months to save up some pounds because traveling on South African rands is next to impossible. Mm. And I was, I went backpacking across Europe again. I started off in Spain, went through France, Belgium, and I came to the Netherlands because the guy who taught me how to play guitar when I was 17 year old lives here and has lived here for 20 years. And you'd kept in contact or, or yeah, off and on. Uh, he'd, he'd married one of my ex-girlfriends and then divorced. <laughs> Long story of this. Anyway, so I came to visit him. And while I was here, I met the woman who's now my wife and mother of my two children. I love it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, I'm staying then. <laughs> I guess so. And I, I, did that happen pretty quickly after you went there? Or? Um, my daughter is now four. No, we hung out for quite a while. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you liked the Netherlands before you met her? You know, I, I first came through the Netherlands in 1994 on my first uh, bout of travels. And I stayed in Amsterdam for five days, stayed in a youth hostel in the middle of the red light district. And I was just like, man, this is a civilized place. You know, everything works. And I mean, in the 90s, Amsterdam was still pretty rough and ready. It's nowhere near as genteel as it is now. Mm-hmm. But by comparison to Johannesburg, South Africa, it was like, okay, this is you know, it was nowhere near as dangerous or as wild or weird. And I'm like, wow, you know, I could probably live here one day. And then, yeah, you know, 20 years later, (laughs) it's exactly where I did end up living. Yeah. You know, the Dutch are very focused on lifestyle. They don't work long hours. They take lots of holidays. Um, You know, family life is incredibly important. They just don't buy into the whole work treadmill pressure, crushing grind vibe at all. They just don't do it. It's not unusual to find people with really high-powered jobs who work 32 or 36 hours a week. Nice. Yeah. So it sounds like you really found a culture that resonated with you and in your values. Yeah. I've always been an outsider. Um, and I am here too. Um, but in terms of what my values are and how I have always chosen to live my life, this is a far more comfortable fit for me than anywhere else I've been so far. So I guess that's why I've, it was easy enough for me to commit to the idea of staying. Well, congratulations. That's a, that's a big, feat, especially, you know, given your background with like feeling with like a man without a country. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's nice to, to feel at home. Right. Yeah. Well, um, you've heard of the whole third culture kid phenomenon, right? Absolutely. So based absolutely. on this, uh, yeah, mili- you know, U.S. military kids. And actually, I mean, I, I, I tick every box on that description, uh, except, of course, I'm not American. But what everyone has discovered is that that that's actually is a paradigm. If you move that early, you, you just don't. You don't bond with where you come, came from and you probably won't bond with where you went to. Well, and I don't, I uh, would say it's not necessarily an American phenomenon either. My friend Alex that lives in Cancun, I did an interview with him and his mother was French and Mm -hmm. his father was Mexican. Mm -hmm. 
and he went to school in the U.S. Um, so, right. you know, he kind of spent some time in, in uh, France and obviously Mexico as well. But but yeah, that that is uh, a thing, right? Globally, yep. and especially as we become more globally mobile, um, yeah. it, it, it is... Um, I think it's a blessing, actually. I mean, it, there's a lot of challenges to it, but uh, I know in the interview I had with him, I mean, it just, it sort of forces you to be more adaptable, right? And, Absolutely. And open. And, and so there's a lot to be said for it. It may be a challenge growing up, but I think as an adult, it, it might actually have an edge. Um, well, if there's one thing that people always say to me, it's just like, my God, how do you do that? You know, you just, wherever you end up, you start something up. And before you know it, you've got a life up and running. And it's like, well, yeah, I've done it enough. I kind of, I know what the basics are. I know what to do. Um, and I'm not scared to do it. Um, and it's actually not that difficult. <laughs> well, and I would say the more you do it, the easier it gets. Well, like right? everything, I guess. Yeah, sure, for sure. Sure. You know, cause I, you know, I moved away in my late twenties and then, you know, kind of stayed put for 20 years, moved again. And now multiple moves where didn't know anybody at all just started from scratch and you yep. you develop those skills and and it helps to have a partner um that yes. is your best friend that goes along with you it might be a little bit more challenging alone but yeah uh, you know and i mean this time around i was lucky that i also had a, a friend who i'd known since i was 10 years old um in the country as well as my new romantic partner because yeah okay she's my best friend and my wife and stuff but we hadn't actually known each other that long we've known each other as long as I've been in the country. Right. Right. Great. Well, I want to um, kind of shift gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, I know when I looked at your website, you said you were a cre creativity activator. I love that. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, so I want to kind of move into your uh, moniker, your rebel, reject and create. Um, yeah. I, those are words that really uh, resonate with me. And as I was reading, it, I was like, oh, I think this guy's a kindred spirit. So we're going to have a really fun uh, conversation. So um, I'll, I'll kind of let you, you take it from there. Yeah. So I believe that everybody is creative. Um, you just have to look at kids playing. And it's like, yeah, everyone's creative. But somewhere along the line, we basically get it schooled, beaten, persuaded out of us. And yet everyone can solve problems. You know, you get stuck in the traffic, you need to take another route, there's a loose screw, you take the butter knife. You know, these are actually really mundane, everyday acts of creativity, but they utilize exactly the same mental processes in your brain as freestyling jazz or writing poetry. So once you understand that and you start to look at the conditions and the, and the, and the preconditions and the tools and the attitudes that are required begin to realize that actually you can do it at will so that's that's my whole thing about the creative uh, activator is helping people and teams and organizations tap into that ability so that we can just you know stay one step ahead of the game because you're actually creating the game you're not following it so that's where the whole rebel reject create mantra comes in you know? so rebel is about rebelling what you're told the status quo the rules um you know, because all the rules do is give you more of the same thing. If you want something new, you've got to break them. Second step, reject, is also to reject what you already think you knew, you know, your beliefs, your opinions. You, you've got to rebel and reject because you need to step into 
ambiguity and to complexity. You need to step away from binary, right, wrong, left, right, black, whites, because only then can you step into the soup where you can find new connections. So in order to create, first, you've got to rebel and reject. If you don't create after having rebelled and reject, then you're probably just going to shoot yourself in the head because then you're just lost in this gray soup. So <laughs> the create part's really necessary because that's where you take control. We'll be back in a moment. Isla Mujeres is a Caribbean jewel off the coast of Cancun. Castellito del Caribe warmly invites you to enjoy our spectacular oceanfront villa located in the heart of El Centro and a short walk to Playa Norte, which is ranked one of the top 10 beaches in the world. With an ocean view of crystal clear turquoise waters overlooking both the Caribbean and Cancun city skyline, we offer a fabulous location for you to enjoy all the peace and tranquility you're looking for on vacation, while also taking in all the excitement the island has to offer, with activities either in walking distance or a golf cart day excursion away. Please visit CastelitoCaribe.com, www.castellitocaribe.com. We look forward to seeing you soon. Is it time to go? Are you starved for adventure and new experiences? Do you feel like you're slowly dying inside, just a little, day by day? Afraid of having to work forever, with never enough money to retire, or live the life you have always imagined. Life doesn't have to be that way. Instead, imagine waking up in paradise every day saying, pinch me, is this real? Walk away with your own custom roadmap to a dream life in paradise without breaking the bank at paradiseroadmap.com. Welcome back to the Overseas Life Redesign Podcast. Thank you so much for being here, and we invite you to subscribe if you like what you hear. The great part's really necessary because that's where you take control. Right. And I am reminded of Einstein's quote, right? You can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. So Exactly. And you know, that's what it's all about. You know, if the way so many jobs and corporations work is literally doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. And it's not sane. It's not normal. Um, and human beings are not designed to be factory assembly workers. That's that's why we have the social ills and the degradations and the things that are happening because of 200 years of industrialization. Isn't Unfor- that the truth? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and unfortunately, our schools are still focused on standardized testing, churning out little robots. And here we sit at the dawn of an age where actually the robots are getting smart enough to do all of that rubbish for us so Mm -hmm. what the hell are we gonna do because our education is not equipping us to do anything else that's where i come in that's my that's my idea it's like okay if everybody was creative on any level and and we're not talking about art here like that's one of the biggest societal misapprehensions you know Einstein was highly creative you know elon musk is highly creative richard branson you know the entrepreneurs businessmen Anytime you come up with a unique, with a new solution to a problem, you are exercising creativity. So what if we all took on that power? What if we all said, well, actually, I'm going to not just choose, but I'm going to make options for myself, and then I'm going to choose which one. I mean, the world would look like a very different place. 
Amen. That's that's for sure. Hmm. So yeah, that's that's my thing. <laughs> so you tell me a little bit about the work that you do. So I um, I'm a keynote speaker. So uh, my major keynote is the, the weapons of mass creation, mm. which is you know a normal hour long keynote. But in it, I explore five different weapons of mass creation, explain what they are, how they work, and how you can do it at home, as it were. Um, but I also present um, interactive webinars, workshops, and I also offer personal coaching for people who have a dream, but they just got no idea, like even really what the dream looks like or how on earth to do it. Um, I coach people through that process as well. Well, and and uh, we're similar in that regard. I, and it so always surprises me how many people really either don't know how or have forgotten how to dream. Right. Well, I, you know, dreams is such a tricky word for me. You know, I, I used to manage bands and I always used to say to my artists, um, the dream is just that, that, that star up in the sky, which is not actually meant to be reached. It's, it's just there to make yourself feel better about your shitty life. So when you go to bed, you can say, it's okay. Cause one day I have a dream. I have a dream. You know, dreams are what happens when you're asleep. Um, and the moment you start acting, it's not a dream anymore. Then it's a plan. And then it becomes real, um, you know, to a greater or lesser extent. So dreams, dreams are nice. But if you don't get off your behind, they are actually just a drug. They're just a way of not doing anything. So you, you just get stuck um, sort of fantasizing about it without putting that, that action. Yeah. You know, um, it's, like, it's like going home and drinking a bottle of wine. You know, you go home and you're like, oh, yeah, but one day it's going to be different because I'm going to do this amazing stuff. So, and one of the things I do is um, I, you know, try to help people imagine what does your life look like five years from now? Like if I gave you a magic wand or, you know, you won the lottery or whatever, what yeah. would you do? Right. And, and as a way to sort of open that uh, door to possibilities, right. Cause a lot of yeah. times, like you say, if they're in a, a job situation or a career, that's very rigid, very left brain, they, they sometimes really have a hard time with that whole process. Yes. And yes. then once you have that, I mean, if you can, if you can paint that clear picture, well, now, now we can come up with a plan, right? Come up with yep. a strategy to be able to make some, what's in the way, what's stopping you, what are the obstacles and, and all that. Yeah. Does that resonate yeah. with you? I'm, you know, I think one has to set goals but I'm much more of a fan of fuzzy goals these days than, than very specific goals. So I'm much more in, in the, of the notion that, okay, set the direction that you're going to take off in and then ask yourself what one thing can I do already with the resources and the energy and the know I have right now, what one thing can I do tomorrow that'll take me one step close to that? And then tomorrow's tomorrow, one more thing. And, and so just literally once that, goal is set to zoom all the way back in reduce it all the way back down to something that you actually already can do and then do it because each of those steps that you make kicks off a chain of reactions and so each step makes a whole bunch of other steps possible on some kind of a level and then once you're once you're going 
then you look up and you kind of go, well, yeah, that is actually where I want to be going, but I don't really want to do exactly that. I want to, it's going to be different. And sometimes when you set really specific goals, they become quite ugly taskmasters and you get stuck in that all over I've again. I've been there. I've done that. <laughs> right. So that's why I'm not such a fan of like really specific goal setting. So but when you I, say uh, direction, um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, sure. Like, so say, you know, you, you're like um, sick and tired of corporate life because, you know, you've, you've, you've got up to the top there and you fought, you fought the good fight and, 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 and bitten the rats back and stuff. And, and you're saying like, oh, this is empty and I, I need out. You know, I think the temptation for, for a lot of people, especially people who come from that background, is to come up with a business plan for a very specific business of their own that they're going to go and do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like saying, why not just rather say that I'm going to start my own business and then start consulting, start doing stuff on the side, start feeling what it feels like to use your knowledge in a different way and see what the results are and learn and focus, change direction a bit, test again. You know, it's, it's basically agile, you know, just to come up with a minimum viable product, take it out the door, see how the market reacts, see how you react. I mean, you don't know. You've never done this before. You've been in a suit your whole life. You don't know how you're going to react. So the whole business plan, the five-year thing, the, the, the venture capital, like, no, 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 no. Just get out there, go and stick your feet in the water and see what happens. So experiment. Yeah. But crucially, act, you know, do stuff. Because Imperfect no experience, action, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No experience is ever lost. And, you know, when you do something right, perfectly, 100% the first time, what do you learn? You know, absolutely nothing. Not much. It's, it's when you screw up and when you fail that you learn stuff. So it's also really important to take that sort of cross of perfectionism off your back because it doesn't serve you. It actually just stops you from trying new stuff out because you're so worried about having to do it right the first time, 100%, that you end up being too scared to try or you end up exerting so much energy on trying to control everything that it's not fun. And then, like, well, you might as well have stayed where you were. Right. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, oftentimes people think, oh, I'll just take my hobby and I'll make that into a business. Well, that's one of the quickest ways you can, you know, kill your hobby out of your hobby. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, so so I think what's important is, is not to be an extremist about it, not to be black and white about it, not just go from, from A to Z in one massive leap, but to just slowly walk out the door. Well, I love what you said about injecting more creativity into the problems we need to solve as a society. What are your ideas for for making that happen? Well, you know, we're living in the middle of a global pandemic. And where did the pandemic originate? Hmm, from food. Where did SARS originate? Hmm, from food. Swine flu, mad cow disease, all of this stuff which is threatening us as a species at the moment is coming from the way we eat, the way we produce our food, the way we farm, what we choose to eat. And it's like, we need to start getting really creative about that. It's got to change. We've got to stop eating animals. Um, not just because it's, I mean, really, <laughs> what are we actually doing anyway? We don't need that much protein. It's a complete fallacy. 
and also because of how much grain we're growing just to feed animals, which could be feeding people. And I mean, they're just, you know, the, the list of incredibly good reasons to stop factory farming animals is enormous. And yet there's, well, it's, we've always done it this way. Oh, everyone's just clinging to it like limpets when quite clearly it's just a really bad idea. And I'm not saying everyone needs to overnight become a vegetarian. Because again, that would just be black and white, right? right. Um, but factory farming has got to go. And um, so for me, that's something that everybody tomorrow can start being creative about. You know, we don't have to legislate on, on factory farming. We just, enough of us just have to decide we're going to stop buying factory farm products. That's all. Voting with our wallets. That's yeah. it. It's, mm-hmm. it's the most powerful tool we have at our disposal. So if it really meant, you know, if we really, really wanted to make change, that's what we'd have to do. Well, it's funny you say that. I, uh, I just turned 60. It has been 42 years I stopped eating red meat when I was 18 years old in college. Mm. When I, I read uh, something about the impact of cattle in particular on the yeah. planet and also the health issues. And even back then, it probably wasn't as bad as it is now with all of the, the chemicals and hormones. And through the years, people <laughs> would ask me, Don, why don't you eat red meat? And my standard response was, well, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> because there was a, you know, quite a, a long list of reasons. And there's, I, I just read an article this week, as a matter of fact, about fat and the difference between animal fat and vegetable fat in terms of health. And it's yeah. pretty clear, you know, the animal fat is, is not good for you. It, you know, yeah. causes heart disease and strokes and all of these other horrific yeah. medical conditions. You know, so there's I, a lot of, there's a lot of everyday stuff lying around that if we just realize that we actually do have options, that we actually can make different choices, we would. Yeah. yeah. And a corollary. I mean, one of the things uh, through the years too, I've noticed is fast food, like the trash is another issue, right? Particularly here on our small Island. I mean, we don't have a, we have a transfer station that became a dump and it was actually overflowing. The last administration decided not to repair the trucks when they broke down and not haul it off. So this Island that's less than five miles long, literally had a mountain of trash Thankfully, a new administration came in, but they're still hauling it off to the mainland. But, you know, you see uh, people come. Fortunately, they've gone to uh, sustainable packaging. They passed a law, the single use plastics, all of that stuff must be recyclable now, biodegradable. But uh, the reality of it is, I mean, if if you don't eat all of that, I mean, the packaging involved in just a simple meal, right, for one person is incredible. And you, you, you don't, most people probably don't think about that, but you, you sort of multiply that across the globe and it's just astounding. So here in the Netherlands, they've got a lot of vegetarian um, meat replacement products, you know, so lookalike burgers, sausages and stuff, but because it hasn't taken off with the huge bang, everything's sold in portions of two. Mm -hmm. So if you want to feed a family of four, you've got to buy two or three packs. Whereas the meat you can buy six burgers in one pack. So weirdly enough, buying the meat is better for the environment because of the packing. Oh, isn't that <laughs> nuts? So yes. there's all this vegetarian stuff, which is actually, because of the way it's being packed and sold, it's just as bad as the environment, basically, as the meat products. It's, you know, it's, it's just so, it's so not sustainable. It really makes you realize that people are just in it for the money. They're not doing it because they think vegetarianism is good. 
or better for us or what have you. They're doing it because they think they can sell it. Because if they were really committed, they wouldn't pack it like that. That's right. I was uh, a poor college student back in the day, and there was a co-op across the street that uh, Mm. my... uh, first husband, my boyfriend at the time, we would volunteer at the co-op and that was the great big bins, right? Mm. Uh, you'd scoop out the brown rice and, and yeah. the vegetables and all of that. It, it was inexpensive, right? Which there's your key right there, yeah. uh, right? It, you can charge more if there's all this these packaging. But yeah. if we could just return to a little bit more simpler way of, of cooking and, and eating, it it would, and, and we eat that way. You know, we, I don't want all those plastic bags in the grocery store. You know, you put your produce in, you know, the, yeah. the mesh bags that they have. There's so many different things that we can do. And I'm glad you said that because that is, that is, I guess, how it starts, right? It's just that, that personal responsibility and saying, I'm just not going to contribute to this mess. Uh, yeah. Another simple thing we have, we love, uh, we don't drink soda. That's, poison in our book, um, haven't for years, but we love uh, sparkling water. Hmm. Well, guess what? It's, you know, you buy it in these plastic bottles. And so we have the little device, the soda stream, CO2 yeah. canisters, you we know, bought one and, last year, exactly. Oh, we love it. And <laughs> it's what we had it on our sailboat. I mean, you know, when you're provisioning on a sailboat, like the last thing you want is more heavy bottles and things yeah. carrying down the companionway on the dinghy, whatever. Uh, so it was a, a more of a practical thing. But but even that, and I understand Pepsi-Cola uh, purchased SodaStream, so it'll be interesting to see if they really want to do something with it or mm. if it was just a plan to kill it. I'm hoping maybe it's the former, not the latter. Yeah. I think, you know, holding these companies uh, responsible as well, um, this movement towards uh, sustainable investing and really paying attention to, you know, who's doing the right things. And, and well, you see, this is where it's really interesting because what, 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 the, what the stats are starting to show is that all of this short-term addiction, you know, very high profits is, is is killing companies. So a lot of these things that are turning the biggest profits are, are, are dead and buried within 10, 15 years. Now, the average lifespan of a big company used to be a generation, 60, 70 years, and it's down to 10 or 12. That's got a social impact. That's got an economic impact. That's got a long-term knowledge base impact. And if, if you're investing, surely you should be more concerned about that than making 25% extra this quarter and then not having a company to invest in after five years. And so that's what's driving this movement. It's, it, it's you know, Thankfully, it's a sensible form of economics and a lot more people are suddenly realizing, hey, wait a second, actually, you know, smaller returns over the longer term are actually worth way more than massive returns over the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, but that whole notion, unfortunately, is, yeah, not as popular as we might might like. Um, you work with companies too, I believe. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, what are you finding in, in that uh, space? It's a difficult one. Everyone's kind of like, yeah, we know, we know, you know, technology, things are changing fast. We've got to become more adaptable. But the trouble is that, you know, someone like me goes in there and everyone's like, wow, this is so cool. And they come out and they're like, yay. But then their line manager is still being held to the same KPIs and the same KPAs. And those are still tied to realizing shareholder value. So it's still quarterly targets. So the behavior cannot change. Yeah. So I have kind of stopped trying to get in to do those kind of team sessions. And now I'm aiming at C-suite, like going, you guys need to change. They're the ones that need to change. And then you, so you can change everything. You've got to rewrite these KPI, KPAs, these performance factors. You've got to rewrite the way that you're 
measuring and delivering value. And you've got to like go into rehab for this bloody, you know, short-term return on investment addiction. Yeah, I uh, I hear that. It's going to be a painful withdrawal, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole West, um, you know, the American Stock Exchange, the European Stock Exchange, I mean, even the even the Far Eastern ones, I mean, that's what it's about. That's why people are shuffling stocks because they're trying to make two extra cents this half hour compared to, and, and it's got nothing to do with the human factor or, or any kind of sustainable vision. And it's it's just piracy of a, you know, it's suited piracy. It's, it's disgusting. Well, hopefully uh, we'll start moving in the right direction. The, the folks that I listen to in the financial sector, um, brightest minds are saying it, this, this can't last what we've seen with the shift in, uh, profits and, and the underlying fundamentals not being there. So there could be a, a big wake-up call that comes. And sometimes that's what it takes, right? In, uh, well, if you're an addict, right, you have to hit bottom. Or, or it just kills you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too, which, which could happen. So I, I'm, you know, all my hopes on these little millennial Gen Zs who everyone insists on bad-mouthing, that they're actually going to change it. Um, because yeah. unlike my Gen X, and you're probably still a Gen Xer as well, you know, we just sold out to the man. We made a lot of noise when we were 20, but by the time we turned 30 and started settling down, we just sucked it all up and yeah. and, and carried on like our parents did. We were a bunch of cowardly, bloody losers. Um, and I think that's why the millennials annoy us so much because they're actually walking the walk when we when we didn't. Yeah, you're right. Um, but part of it too, I think, is a different mindset. I mean, you know, my parents were, you know, of that World War II age where you're, mm. you know, you're really indoctrinated so much about, you know, oh, this is going to be great and this is how it all works. And, you know, the yeah. they go into school, you get good grades, you get the job and you get the pension and, and all that. And we were like, okay, yeah, that sounds cool. And really kind of bought into it more. And it's really interesting to see, as you point out, this younger generation that says, ah, no. Yeah. Right Work yourself to death so that you can have free time when you're too old to enjoy it. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and and it's interesting to see the, you know, the people my age and even you know much older that are saying, "Well, wait a minute, I still have a long time left, and I don't want to do that anymore. I I I want to. I work was working with a seventy uh, two year old uh, gentleman this summer, and he's like, I want to find my purpose at seventy two. I mean, God bless him, you know." Um, yeah. I mean, how many dots has he got to join? You know, 50 years work experience, what he must know, Yeah. you know, and and you combine that with modern know-how and and, and, and knowledge and information. You just think, you know, the fact that people like that are pushed routinely out of the loop, it's it's just like, it's like burning books, essentially. Yeah. It's just dumb. It's again, it's not sustainable. I mean, what are we thinking? Well, this has been an amazing conversation and I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I always like to close with this final question. And that is, is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share before? we? <laughs> no, I, I came into this with, a, uh, with absolutely no preconceptions. So um, <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> well, I love the work you do. And, and I looked, uh, you're a prolific writer. I had a look at uh, some of your work on your website and I will definitely share your uh, website link in the show notes and Thank really you. appreciate you uh, sharing your pearls of wisdom with uh, me and in my community. And we it's will been a pleasure. <laughs> stay in touch. For sure. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right. Thanks, David. 
This episode of the Overseas Life Redesign podcast was brought to you by our sponsors. Thanks for tuning in. Did you love this episode of the Overseas Life Redesign podcast? Then please subscribe to our show and leave us a nice review. It's very much appreciated. We invite you to visit paradiseroadmap.com. Thanks for listening.